I'm going to show you my ignorance today. <clears throat> it's a little embarrassing, but that's okay. When I first got married, uh, my father-in-law got uh, me and my wife, Taylor, a, a toolbox as a gift. And uh, as I was looking through it, I, I pulled this thing out, okay? Um, and at first, I will confess, I didn't know what in the world it was. Uh, somewhat in my defense, though, it was kind of like, you know, uh, all cattywampus and not looking the way it was supposed to, and I can't get it to do it. what it was looking. There it is. I was like, what the heck is that thing? I have no idea. What is it? What is it? What is it? I don't know. Well, I came, out, I came to find out that it's a hacksaw, and it was just missing its blade. But I remember, again, pulling it out and thinking, what in the world is this thing for? What is its purpose? What am I to do with it? Thanks, father-in-law, but I'm not sure exactly how this thing works. I never see myself using it anyways. Um, what was I going to do with it? What was it for? You know, we all need to know what something is for. Last week, we looked at Philippians 2, 1 through 12, and explored the proper mindset for the Christian, and that it, what is it? It's the mindset of humility. We got that from the example of Christ that Paul uses there in that passage. Though he who was the exalted one, he was humiliated, so to speak, by taking on flesh, but then he was again exalted and given the name that was above all names. We looked, he looked out for the interests of others. That was his mindset. Even though he experienced things in his humiliation that was not proper, so to speak, for he who was the Son of God, in his very form, God, the text said. So today, we're in a ask, what was the example of Christ given by Paul for? What was its purpose, and what are we to do with it? Well, I think Paul follows that up in the passage just, that Cameron just read, and, why, and the reason he used that example of Christ is, is for a few things. It tells us what to do, so to speak. Again, it was, last week's passage was loaded with theology, heavy on it. Richness was there. But we ask, what are we to do with it? Unfortunately, we can often treat theology like it's toothless, much like this hacksaw. However, I believe that theology is never toothless. It's always practical. And that's what Paul is going to show us today in the passage that we just read. So the question is, what are we to do with the example of Christ? We're going to be looking at four things today from this passage that we are to do with the example that Christ gave us. And that's what I think Philippians 2, again, 12 through 18, is showing us and is all about. So open your Bibles and turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Again, for those of you that are maybe new to the Bible, Philippians is in the New Testament. That's the latter half of your Bible. It's after Ephesians and before Colossians. Again, Philippians chapter 2, turn with me there. So again, what are we to do with the example of Christ? Well, first, we are to obey. We're to obey. Paul, again, says in the passage, 
Therefore, my beloved, as you always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What's Paul talking about here? He's talking about obedience, and he means that it's obedience to Christ, as modeled through Paul, present or absent. Paul has seen them obey, and he's asking them to continue in that, especially right off the heels of Jesus' example. Again, uh, one commentator put it this way. Uh, Gordon Fee, in his uh, passage on his book on Philippians, said, For Paul, faith in Christ is ultimately expressed as obedience to Christ, not in the sense of following the rules, but of coming under his lordship. Now, what does that obedience look like fleshed out, though? Paul tells us it's working out our salvation with fear and trembling. I'm going to unpack that. That's what obedience is fleshed out. Again, this isn't working at or for your salvation. That's not what Paul's talking about. But it carries the sense of carrying it out, accomplishing it. This is how saved people live out their salvation. They live it out in obedience to Christ, corporately, like in this body, and also individually in their own lives by submitting to his lordship. If I could maybe put it up this way, what does it mean to work out your salvation with fear and trembling and, and, uh, you know, under uh, obedience? Salvation, biblically speaking, and all the different words that we use for it, is from, to, and for. And what I mean by that, in, in salvation, we are saved from our sins in death to a new life in Christ for bringing the hope of the gospel to all the nations and that we might glorify God. Salvation is always from, to, and for something. And so Paul is calling us to rise to the task, to accomplish something in this newfound faith. The way that I kind of thought of it is um, the movie Princess Diaries came to my mind, okay? How many of you have seen the Princess Diaries? It's been a few years. And rewatching the trailer just to confirm everything, I really got to go back and watch that movie again. So anyways, um, Anne Hathaway is the main actress, and Mia Thermopolis is the name of the gal who is, uh, well, not talented. She's unpopular. She's just a nobody, really, and she's kind of just sad and upset about that. And then all of a sudden, she finds out through her grandmother and, and everything like that, uh, that she is a princess, Whoa, she's royalty. And then all of a sudden, even though she's royalty, the real work begins. She has to learn how to stand properly, walk properly, eat properly, talk properly, all those other things because guess what? She went from a nobody to royalty in just the flip of a switch. In a similar way, Paul is telling us that you are to carry out your salvation to accomplish something because you just went from dead in your trespasses to alive in Christ. You are a new creation, you are a new life, and you're going from somebody who was an enemy of God to now a friend of his. And there's a life that you now live. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Again, the fear and trembling, it's, it's not like we always have to be scared of God. I think there is a good healthy fear of God, especially in the Old Testament. And, and trembling, like when you pray, you always have to be trembling. No. It equates to awe. Remembering what God has done and remembering this, what a passage just told us in Philippians 2, 1 through 11, that we will all bend the knee to Jesus. Again, whether we do that in loving obedience or stiff-necked. 
Again, it's an awe that we're to come and have in this newfound faith. The way that I kind of thought about this again is the figure of Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia. When you read through all seven books, by the way, if there's any New Year's resolution, I would say do that, read those books, regardless if you're a kid or adult. Man, great, great series. He was a figure who was approached with fear and trembling. The, 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 the Pevensey kids wanted to go and hug him, but also he would growl sometimes and you'd be like, oh, okay, I remember who you are. You're a giant lion. Watch out. In the same way, we approach working out our fear with salvation, or working out our salvation with fear and trembling because God is not a God who can be tamed, so to speak. We don't always have him figured out. And we're accomplishing and carrying out this relationship with him as a new person in Christ. And we have to remember who, what he did for us, but also remember that one day we will bend the knee to him as Lord. Again, an application for us from this fear and trembling is this. We remember that Jesus, being again our Lord, being again he who saved us, and we obey him, we do that in community, with fear and trembling, we look out for others. Because, again, we realize in our salvation that we had need and that others, too, have need. And so when we are doing this properly with fear and trembling and awe, we're remembering that God has created these people and also saved these people, too. And we walk alongside people who all were once enemies and who are now brothers and sisters in Christ. We look out for others, God's people. And we do that because, ultimately, at the end of the day, whether or not you just attend church or, or, or you're, you're intimately involved or um, what have you, God knows your heart. God knows your approach to others. Are they below you in your mind? Or have you seen them again as brothers and sisters in Christ who all have come before God because of their need? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Four, for, Paul continues on, it is God who works in you, it says in the passage, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What does that mean? Well, I'm indebted to uh, Gordon Fee again for his outline of this. And what this basically says is it's showing who did it, where he did it, what happened, and why. That's what this one little sentence is telling us. Who, who works in you? God does. God supplies the power for your obedience. God supplies the power for your obedience. He's the one who's working in you. A couple of ways to illustrate this. What does that exactly look like? Well, one quick plug for men's breakfast. I got one of these uh, illustrations for men's, bre from men's breakfast yesterday in the Tony Evans series, Kingdom Heroes. Anyways, the way that he described it, um, and I think it's roughly applicable, is it's like a motion detector's lights. You, when you have motion detector lights in a room, the power's there. And, and, and all you have to do is walk into a room, it just needs to sense motion, and there it turns and flips on. God is the one who has the power that is effectively a wor outworking that in your life. Don't ever forget that God has that power for you and behind you. Also, I got this one from Pastor Brian. Is God who works in us. He, Paul has just told us, you know, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but also remember, it's not all up to you. Because God's working in you. 
Pastor Brian likened it to a rowboat where you need both oars to keep going, your work and God's work to keep going. Don't ever forget that you're walking this out in a new creation life with God Almighty. God is the one who works in you. Where is he working? He's working in you and among you. So he's working in you personally in your own lives and among us corporately. Again, what God does in you individually should help all of us corporately. Again, what God is doing is, again, slowly but surely killing our sin by the works of his Holy Spirit. That's all been accounted for and forgiven, but we have this flesh that continues to fight us. And when we are changed individually, it, it helps us corporately. God is working in you personally and among you corporately. And what is he doing? Well, it's not just like he's just the power behind everything. And that, I mean, that is what he's doing. But also he helps you in your willing. It says God is the one who helps you to work and to will for his good pleasure. He's empowering your wills, your hearts, your pleasures. Because here's the thing when you become a new creation in Christ. All those things that you desired in your old life works of the flesh and different sins and whatever it is, all those things seem faint and dim and, and really hopefully dead to you. But there's still this, this vestige and this thing that carries over where God is slowly but surely helping you change your desires. Where you wanted that fame and that, all the accolades and to climb the ladder and everything like that, God is replacing that with instead of desire of others, looking out for others, and not worrying about yourself, me, myself, and I, being the top dog, so to speak. When we are in Christ, he's empowering our wills, our desires, to love him and to love others above all else. And why is he doing it? For his good pleasure. For his good pleasure. God wants to see things happen that he wants to happen. And he works through us, again, individually and corporately to bring about his purposes and his plans. Again, though, I mean, maybe we're like, well, for God's good pleasure, but I don't have any say about that. Well, that's right. He's God, the creator of everything, and you are the, the creature if you hold to that. And so here's the thing, though. If God is good, and, and really, in a sense, the ultimate good, then he's working all things together for our good. And his good pleasure, Lord willing, is ultimately delightful to us. When we see others, again, become saved, so to speak, and, and, and die to their old selves, and bring a new life in themselves, but God, God brings a new life in them, that should be something that we want, that should bring us joy, that we should love. When we see people pursuing their marriages faithfully, when we see people doing excellent work, when we see our kids walking in faith and obedience to Jesus, those all things, all those things God wants. And all those things should bring us delight and pleasure too. Again, if God's the ultimate good and is working all things together for our good, then his good pleasure should also be delightful to us as well. If I could tease out one more thread for this kind of theological point and um, movement is this. God is for you. If you hear anything from this verse, God is for you. 
and you're a part of his plan. Obedience to him isn't drudgery, isn't just following the rules and falling in line, but it's delightful. And we pray, God, please change my will, change my desires to, again, kill those things that I used to love, and instead pursue you and all that you want as well. God is for you. You're part of his plan. Don't ever forget that. So, what is the example of Christ for? I, I said, one, it was to obey, but secondly, so it's for our obedience, and secondly, it's for abstinence. Abstinence, I'm using that word. That's right, you'll hear. You'll see what I mean. Abstinence, it's for us to abstain from something. Look in your Bibles with me. Verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Again, I'm using abstinence in the just general word, not of like purity before marriage, but just saying you're abstaining from something. You're keeping yourself from something. God is telling us to keep ourselves from grumbling and disputing, complaining, murmuring. And in here, I think we have an intentional allusion back to Scripture in the Old Testament. If we know our Bibles and we look at what, the, what God did in the Exodus, he brings people out of the land of Egypt in slavery and saves them and brings them through the Red Sea and then is taking them to Mount Sinai and all along the way, they start grumbling almost immediately. Exodus 16, they're grumbling, they're murmuring, you know, like that. Israelites grumble against and say, basically, man, if we were back in Egypt, we would have full meat pots, we would be warm by fire, and now here we are and sit out in the wilderness eating this manna. And in fact, what happens is they forget that back there, though, they were in slavery. Which, really quick side note, that's one of the issues with nostalgia is sometimes it really actively forgets the really bad, dark things that we were blind to. The Israelites were saved from slavery. In fact, Exodus 3 says that they called out to God for, for help from their slavery. And now here they are, they're saved, so to speak, and all they want to do is grumble about their food. It's a reminder to us to not be grumbling against God. It's a reminder to us, too, that there's far more better riches here in this Christian body and in our individual lives uh, with, with God than there was before. Therefore, let us not fall into gossip in this church, in our families. Let us not say, he said, she said, that type of argument, or let's not fall into complaining. Again, both corporately about what goes on here, but secondly, also in our individual lives, about our spouses, about our kids, about work, and all those other things. Paul again says, mainly corporately, do all things in the church, do all things without grumbling, but it applies elsewhere. It applies elsewhere to remind us that when we don't do that, we are blameless and innocent. Again, the Im image of purity is in play here. In Old Testament in an Old Testament, Testament sacrifices and the priests and everything like that, they had to be pure, and those animals were usually the best of the best, the spotless lambs and everything. And what Paul is asking us to do is to live out that salvation that you've been given in the same way that you are now brought into Jesus. You're spotless and cleaned and made new. We've been purified, washed 
by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. In the same way, let our lives be pure. Abstain from that murmuring that so easily comes. And why do we do that? Because we're in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Paul's saying that that's what pagan Philippi is. Again, Paul's writing to the church in Philippi that this is a twisted and crooked generation. All those who have not believed in Jesus are twisted and crooked. These people acknowledge other lords as their savior, like Caesar and gods that they bow the knee to. You bow the knee to someone else, Paul says to the church in Philippi now. Among whom you shine as lights in the world, the passage says. It reminds us again of Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. I have that passage here for us. And those who are wise, again in this context, in verse 2 right before this, those that have their names in the book of life, those who are wise, those who would be saved, so to speak, shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, the stars in the sky. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Again, what Paul is getting at here is you, when you don't murmur, are going to remain blameless and innocent amidst all the darkness around you. And when you do that, you are able to influence the darkness, to beat it back, so to speak, to change things, to bring more light into the world. And you're also contrast. The smallest little light shines bright in the darkness. That's how one commentator put it. You are lights when you influence things as well as contrast things. Again, I really loved, there's a, a blogger um, and writer named Tim Challies. Uh, maybe some of you heard of him. He does a lot of book reviews and things like that. Uh, he unexpectedly in 2020 uh, lost his 20-year-old son to just a random death. I forget exactly what happened, but his son died one day playing sports at college. And he ended up writing a book about this uh, called In Seasons of Sorrow that came out recently. Again, this is after the loss of his 20-year-old son. And he wrote a little kind of uh, petition or a little reminder to himself when he was going through this and spending that first year really in mourning. He said, I will grieve accepting the reality, but I will not grumble. I will mourn, but I will not murmur. I will weep, but I will not whine. And I think ultimately what Tim shows us in that is how to be a faithful person who's going through suffering. There's a difference between grieving and grumbling and mourning and murmuring and weeping and whining. And ultimately, when we make those distinctions and those contrasts, it reminds us who is in control, ultimately God, who meets us in our suffering, who is Lord, who has saved me, and I should not murmur and grumble, but I can grieve, I can mourn, I can weep. And Paul says, again, for the purpose of that, is that we would shine, evangelism really is what he's getting at, but also that we would hold fast to the word of life. That context is still in play from Daniel chapter 12. We don't need to show it again. But it says in there, bring many sons to righteousness. Those who are wise, through their light shining, so to speak, will bring many sons to righteousness. And holding, we do that by holding fast to the word of life. And the word of life is the gospel. Because when we bring the gospel, it brings life to dead people. 
Paul's asking us to hold fast. Bring that through. The image that I had in my mind was bringing a torch through the deepest, thickest darkness of the night. Keep it up. Keep going. going. Hold fast because you have the word of life with you. Again, our abstinence from murmuring, it helps our witness. Or it hurts our witness when we do. When you don't grumble at work, for instance, you influence and contrast your co-workers. When you don't, I mean, again, there's a whole lot to possibly unpack there about working environment and bosses and all those things and ethics and, you know, a lot. But when you don't grumble at work, you want to influence those around you not to. And secondly, you also show contrast to those that are just all caught up in it. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Abstain. The example of Christ is for our obedience, for our abstinence, and also for our preparation. Verse 16, our preparation. This one will be rather quick. Verse 16, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So that So Paul says, remember that this is all also for a purpose, for your preparation. In the day of Christ, that says, with the day of Christ in view. Don't forget that one day there will be a judgment day. And one day all knee will bow and tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Live your life in view of that coming day is what Paul is saying. Live your life as lights humbly shining in the darkness. Because one day... Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. There will be a judgment day. Don't forget that. And Paul says, also don't forget it for me. Paul says, don't forget it for me that I may be proud that I did not labor in vain. Paul, I think elsewhere says, he knows he's not laboring in vain. But he says, ultimately, I want to come back to you and I want to keep going, but I'm not sure how things are going to work out exactly. And he says, showed me on the last day, on judgment day, that my labor was not in vain by continuing to hold fast to the word of life, by not disputing and grumbling and murmuring. Your preparation with the end in mind makes us, Paul, and us pastors, delighted. I I, I love when I see people going and shining as lights in the darkness not grumbling or disputing and faithfully serving and keeping it up and doing things that God would expect to them. In fact, one of the things that just, I guess if, you, if I put it this way, it makes my heart sing, even though I don't really sing, is that um, teens, when they repeat something that I've said, I, I, I'm, I'm so proud. I'm over the moon. Uh, one of the things I always say and have said from the beginning is that everybody has value, dignity, and worth because they're an image bearer of God. And I beat that into my teen's head a lot as a reminder to us that that person that we despise is still yet an image bearer. And even though they are walking in darkness, they're still yet an image bearer who has value, dignity, and worth. And when I hear a teen quote that back, yes, thank you, Lord. Then me be proud that I not, did not labor in vain. Perhaps Pastor Brian has things too when he sees you listening and faithfully moving in your lives. Remember, judgment day will come. Live your life in preparation for that. So the example of Christ, 
What are we to do with it? We're to obey, we're to abstain, we're to prepare, and lastly, we're to sacrifice. We're to sacrifice. Verses 7 and 18. Paul said, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul's saying, even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering, which he thinks that he is. Again, the Old Testament sacrificial systems in view here. In view of, in, in view as they're suffering. They're suffering as an offering, a pleasing aroma, so to speak. In the Philippians, sacrificing and suffering, which has already been touched upon in the book of Philippians, under persecution in Philippi, and that also Paul's imprisonment, imprisonment matches that. It's a reminder that, the sacrifi- uh, that, that they're sacrificing, that they are living a life even while they're undergoing persecution. Paul's life is being poured out as a drink offering. And again, in the Old Testament, there was usually an animal sacrifice and a grain sacrifice. You can find this in Numbers 25, uh, 7 especially, and then a drink sacrifice. All these things the priests brought for, and these things were poured out upon the altar. Our lives are poured out upon the altar, and, and so to speak, in sacrifice to God. And Paul, again, imprisoned, is saying, my life is matching that, as yours is too, Philippians, because I know the persecution that you've undergone as well. And I'm meeting you, matching you in that. It's a reminder that there will always be, always be martyrs for the faith. There will always be those who sacrifice it all, so to speak, for their faith. People all over the world from the very beginning in history, and I'll mention um, one of those in a second, and even up till now, they are willing to give it all because they see their life as an offering, a sacrifice before God. Are we there? It's a question to ask for ourselves. And lastly, Paul says, be glad and rejoice with me. One of the key themes in Philippians is joy. And in suffering, Uh, persecution for your faith, you can be joyful knowing that you follow in Christ's steps and that your future is in Christ's hands. Again, remember Stephen. He remembered that his future was in Christ's hands and others too potentially when he said as he's being stoned to death, do not hold their sin against them. Stephen remembered that there's a possibility that they too can become saved. Or when Jesus says on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. When we are undergoing persecution and suffering, we can remember that our future is in God's hands and we can still be joyful. I don't know exactly all what that looks like in, in my life or your life, but whatever suffering and persecution you're undergoing, undergoing especially for your faith, remember that God is for you, not against you. He's with you, and your future is in his hands. Again, our faith, no matter what, no matter what the culture is around us, no matter what, will be, will be persecuted. That has been from the beginning and will be until the end. We will be persecuted as Christians. 
but never forget, never forget that God is on your side. I want to conclude by just saying a few words. The mindset of humility, or really the example of Christ, the way that I framed it last week was the mindset of humility, and Paul's using the example of Christ there. It's for something. What are we to do with it? It's, it's again, for something. That we might obey. That we might abstain, prepare, and also sacrifice. Christ is for you, for your life, to live it out to the fullest. Humbly shine in the darkness around you. Let me quickly close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much that you are good to us, that you have not just given us a piece of theology to leave theoretical in your son's life, death, and resurrection. His exaltation to humiliation to exaltation is not just a piece that we should leave on the table, but that we have an example. Again, all under submission to Jesus, we obey. We abstain from murmuring. We prepare for the day, judgment day, and we, and we sacrifice our very own lives. May we always remember the example of your son, Jesus. And never forget that it's in his name that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Amen.